Good evening. My name is James and I am an alcoholic. Guys, everybody doing? It's nice to be here tonight. Thank you very much for asking us. And thank my beautiful partner for opening. We were driving over here tonight, just, oh God, we want to go to bed. You know, <laughs> but it is good to be here. My sobriety date is uh, July 29th, 1991. So I celebrated 30 years last year. And uh, um, hey, James. It gets over James. the first time I tried. Sorry, sorry I a year in 87 and uh, in the county jail for my third DUI. And I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous after that. I got sober for six months the first time I tried. And then I created something the way we do when we think we know everything and uh, in my family home. And, uh, and I had to get some Coke and get her back. And I started relapsing. And I spent 10 or 12 times of coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, introducing myself as a newcomer before I was finally able to get sober. And in that time, I said, the last year, I said, I'm not even gonna bother those poor people. You know what I mean? I just, I mean, I, I knew I was gonna come back to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was miserable. It just wasn't gonna to be today. You know what I mean? It was that kind of deal. So anyway. Hey, James. Uh, yes, sir. James, would you mind yes, being sir. a little, can you, would you mind staying a little closer to the mic so we can see you oh, talking? You, I'm not talking loud enough? <laughs> um, I don't get it, that often. <laughs> Well, it's more that we, we, we can't see. Okay. We don't know if you're making Just funny faces. a little faces. bit of other information. Um, uh, family of origin. I have five brothers and sisters. My mom had mental issues and had tried to commit suicide. And I got drunk for the first time when I was 10 years old. I didn't know you could get drunk. I'd never seen anybody drunk that I know. My parents didn't drink. But there was girls there and this bottle was being passed around. And I was doing what I did a lot of at a young age. I was showing off. And I didn't know. I, I got sicker than a dog. But I, I loved it. I loved it. And so that set me up because if I was born in 58. So in the 70s, I was 12 years old. And so in the late 60s, I mean, we started with the drugs and the alcohol and anything to get high. And I've always wondered whether I was more addicted in those days where I really loved getting loaded. I mean, like more than anything or at the end of it all where I had to be loaded just to be. I had to be drunk. I had to be something. And what happened is I gave my freedom up. They, uh, by the time I was 12 years old, because of my mom's condition and my inability to not get loaded, I was made a ward of the court and put into the juvenile system. And I didn't get out till I was 17 years old. And, uh, you know, this set me up for a lot of things that are antisocial. And there's a part of me that wants to, wants to paint this picture so that you can understand the miracle that Alcoholics Anonymous has been in my life and that these steps and the traditions that we live by have been the very tools that have changed me into who I am today to have the life that I have today. Because see, back in those days, I was very angry. And what happened is I looked at my folks with their stuff and said, you know, if this is love, I don't want to have none of this. And this is perfect for an alcoholic. You can do whatever the fuck you want, man. You know, I just didn't care. I get loaded, go to jail, get whatever, didn't matter. But what happened is I ended up in these juvenile places. I was in this place in Chino, the Boys Republic, it was called. And I was the only person out of Orange County. Everybody else was out of L.A. County. They had gunshot wounds. And I mean, I was actually scared. I'm just a loady, man. I just want to get loaded. I don't want to kill people. Are you kidding me? You know what I mean? And so, <laughs> so I started getting it right at that time. I think I started playing the game. You know, I ended up in a boys home in Santa Ana and I got emancipated and I needed a, what did I need? A job and I needed a car uh, and I needed some place to live. And so I got a motorcycle, my first motorcycle, and I got a job washing dishes at a Norm's restaurant 
And I met a girl and two days or two weeks later, we moved out together and I quit, the, I quit the dishwashing job. Now, the thing about it is that's interesting is that alcoholism is in every single part of my life at that point. The way I looked at the world, the way I treated people, everything about me was grounded in alcoholism, was grounded in anger and negativity. And I don't know that I'd ever even really experienced love like I've experienced it in Alcoholics Anonymous. I know I didn't. And so at any rate, I, um, we moved out together and... And then at one point, her probation officer said she had to marry me or move out. Now, you couldn't do that today, but, you know, this is what they did. And so we talked about getting married. Our parents both said no. And so the first thing we did was we got married. And, and that continued. You know, I mean, and here again, one more time, like there's, there's things I would tell you, like alcoholism has robbed me of things. You know, we got married because they didn't want us to get married. I mean, that's the bottom line, you know, and uh, and I think that marriage is a, like a sacred thing. I think it's something that a man and woman should celebrate. I see people do this in Alcoholics Anonymous, where they date for a period of time, they fall in love, he proposes to her, they have a wedding that's planned. None of that happened. When um, <laughs> my wife was going to try on wedding dresses with bruises on her arms as we were shooting cocaine. You know what I mean? It was the most horrible experience. The night that we got married, we had a party but we were in the back room getting loaded the whole time. We didn't go out and socialize with anybody. I mean, this is a hell of a price tag to pay. And uh, what happened is it pushed me further and further down into it. All of that juvenile time, it had got me to this frame of mind where I just wanted to get out. I wanted to be left alone. I wanted to be able to get loaded the way I'd seen other people get loaded. I was tired of them in my life. And so I got out of that place and we started partying. I got married, she had, we had a baby. And I started picking up stupid things to go to jail for, you know, registration, you know, uh, failure to appear. And then the drunk driving started coming in. And so little by little, the jail times were getting more and more. And it, what even happened is I had friends that I only saw in jail. You know, these were guys that were, were just like me. So the first time you show up in jail, you look around, oh, Bob, how's it going? Like, how much time are you doing now? You know what I mean? It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. You know, what was really ridiculous was to accept that as a life, you know, like that this is okay. You know, I mean, like that, that this is what, I, this is what guys like me do, you know, and what happened is it just kept getting worse and worse. And, you know, I get part of the, um, I'll give you an example. So when I got the third DUI and there was a couple other things involved, I had to go on an abuse uh, while we went through the court proceedings. And this is, this is exactly the way I was. I waited till the very last minute to go get this exam or to get signed up or to do something to start taking an abuse. And so the last day I had to do it, it was pouring rain and I'm down in Laguna and I don't have a motorcycle to get to Garden Grove. And so I ride all the way up there in the rain. I mean, I am just stripping from everything. And I walk into the social services or whatever it is. They got somebody walking behind me, mopping up the mess. And my attitude is I'm here now. What, you know, what do you want me to do? You know, because I just had no, I had no comprehension for it. You know, like my brain couldn't expand that big. And I think it's important to say that. So, you know, I ended up getting sober, you know, all those meetings. I, it, uh, uh, I ended up starting to go to meetings and, and, and religiously, I knew I was going to stay sober. I didn't know what that looked like or anything, but I knew that to take one drink was to smoke that damn Coke. And I knew that that was never, ever, ever going to change. And in that time of going in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, I learned 
that thing that I didn't believe about the first drink or all the things that we read about in the book, they happen. And over and over again, and I saw that everything that Alcoholics Anonymous had said to me had been true. And I had been the one that had not believed and I was the one suffering. I was, there was other guys that were just like me that were at the club. They didn't like it, didn't want to do it, but needed to. And they were staying there and they were getting sober and their lives were getting better. And I would come back and I would see them and I'm like, damn. And so, so I get sober, you know, I'm in uh, Laguna. I got my daughter because my wife had taken off. She finally just went and got loaded by herself. And my life was a mess. And I was going to two meetings a day, one in the morning, one at night. And I would tell people the reason is I would wake up in the morning and I literally would hate the first person I saw. And it was me in the mirror. And I just, it was, I, I, and I didn't even know, you know what I mean? It's like this feeling was so old, this one of disgust, this one of disdain, this one of, uh, you know what I mean? Because you see everybody else living life and I had no idea how to do it. So the importance of the steps to me, it didn't come in right away, but we read them and my, I worked them with my sponsor and slowly but surely things started to change for me. Now, what I would tell somebody to me, one, two, and three, they're like the most important steps to me personally, because what happened is I was raised with a, how do you say, a smash and grab mentality, <laughs> you know, like if you wanted something, grab it fast, you know what I mean, push people out of the way. I mean, it wasn't a thing of waiting calmly in line for your share. That wasn't the way it was for me. And so this idea of personal powerlessness, this idea of, of accepting that this was going on, that I wasn't going to have this. This wasn't going to work out the way it was. It was able to stop forward movement. And to me, that was important. And I want to say that again so that you understand is that, that when I wanted something, I would head in a direction. And my mentality would stop me from seeing other things until it was too late. I'd either be in handcuffs or everybody would hate me or I'd be bloody. And that was the result of my best thinking. And so the thing of, of figuring out steps one and then two and three, to be able to stop grabbing, to stop wanting, to stop doing something, to be willing to wait for something to happen rather than trying to orchestrate it myself. You know, it was, uh, it was incredible. And of course, in the beginning, it was only in small cases. I don't want to make you think that I've got steps one, two, and three, and all of a sudden my life changed. It's been very slowly, but it's been a constant application of these things. You know, at the, you know, I try and think of specifics. I've had problems in all areas of my life. Just the same thing as the inventory and the four-step. Uh, you have security, social, and sexual. So security to me kind of defined in money. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with some back taxes, probably about $17,000 worth, not a lot, but in my mentality, I thought they owed me. You know, I mean, I, and if you talk to me on any day, I could lay the story out about how I'd done this and they had done that and they owed me this money. And I swear to God, it was eight and a half years later. It was a, it was $35,000 and I finally was able to pay it. But until that time, I couldn't keep cash in the bank. You know, and, and one of the craziest things, like I, I, I was a Coke hit, man. We smoked Coke. We spent rent. We spent everything on Coke. We just, I didn't have, ever have any money, ever. And, uh, and so in the recovery home, I was able to save $1,000. And I moved out at the end of the first year. It was like $2,500. You know, I, I just, it was nuts. I just got carried away. And then what happened is shoving money in that envelope became the drug. You know, and, and, and the money, I mean, it wasn't fast. I mean, I, you were talking eight years to get $40,000, but in the beginning, 
if I was, my feelings were hurt, if you wouldn't go out on a date with me or something, I'd go home and count that money. <laughs> and it would make me feel a little better. <laughs> but not forever, only in the beginning. <laughs> you know, at some point, it just stopped working. You know what I mean? I wouldn't even bother counting it because it wasn't going to help. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I had this, I had it in like four or five different locations in the bedroom in case somebody come burglarize it, they wouldn't get on. I mean, it was crazy. But what I learned is money isn't anything. It's a tool, like a skill saw, a shovel, like a car. That's all it is. It's not going to make me any better than I am because that's what the mistake I made is I thought if I had more money, I'd be better. You know what I mean? I truly did. And boy, I really hit a bottom. So I had a year where every month at the end of the month, I emptied out all my accounts, except for a small amount in my business and personal account. And I sent it in. And at the end of the year, I got all the taxes paid off. And I got like 15 of the, what do you call it? The recorder releases. <laughs> Just because, you know, they'll put stuff on your credit report. They don't care about taking it off. You have to have the evidence. And so let's talk about another area. So we'll talk about relationships. And women. And uh, I don't know, I think a lot of times, guys I've talked with, I think in my case, I had sex in an orgasm before I ever experienced love. I mean, that's the God on truth for me. And I think what happened is I ended up thinking that love was sex. That's how I would interpret it. And so I'd have these relationships. And because I didn't feel very good about myself, I couldn't have a normal girlfriend. I had to have a girl that needed something, you know what I mean? And, and so I would keep a car around, you know, like in case you needed to borrow a car. I mean, this is, this is sick shit. This is five, eight, 10 years of sobriety, but I'm making progress. I mean, I'm getting better. It's just at a snail's pace. It's just a flow, you know what I mean? And so what would happen is of course, I would get a girlfriend, I'd have this girlfriend and things would be going along okay. And then what would happen is she would just start acting weird or doing weird stuff, you know, the, the real her would come out, you know, and that would clash with the real me, you know, what I mean? and it would be this huge problem. And my life was a mess from it. I mean, the same as with the money. It was, it was crazy. I was defined by this shit. And I was always going to my sponsor, man, God, man, she did this, she did this, blah, blah, blah. And he always was doing the back, the fingertip. No, you, 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 you know, she, she's doing the best she can. You should know better. And that's when we found that line in the four step. It says, um, it says, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate seemingly unprovoked. But if we look back into our past, we will see that we made a choice based on self, which places us in a position to be harmed. And that's exactly what I was doing. That defined, that describes every problem I had in the first 10 or 15 years of my sobriety was me making choices based on self, me making choices based on what I want, regardless of how it was going to affect you. You know, and I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I was the worst person in the world. There were a lot of other guys doing the same thing. <laughs> Not that that matters. <laughs> but, but, you know, this is what alcoholism had done to me. And, you know, and, and when you read those pages, the ones about the people who haven't come forward or haven't hit those bottoms, that's absolutely correct. Alcoholism to me is a disease. I still have it. I mean, I'm going to have 31 years of sobriety, but alcoholism is alive and well in me. And it's the actions that I take on a daily basis that keep it in check. You know what I mean? And so I, I think the, the thing about it really was in the relationships through the inventories, through the soul searching, the tears and the praying was, is that I didn't love myself and I expected her to do it for me. And that's the bottom line. 
And, and so what happened was the task becomes, so, so how do you learn to love yourself? I mean, it's so, so fucking tacky. Are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> but it's true. Now, I want you to think for a second, if God created us in his image and God loves us, the two things that he really wants us to do is love ourselves and love his other kids, you know, and my low self-esteem got in the way of both of those, because what I realized is I treated you the same way I treated me, you know, and when I was hard on me, I was hard on you, and it wasn't until I started being a little gentler with myself, it wasn't until I started being kind. Now, what I realized is that there are some things that I would do that would make me feel good, proud like working, like doing a good job, like showing up on time. These things made me feel good deep down inside me, but that's not enough. You know, you cannot define yourself by work. I mean, my business was good or we making money, whatever. You know, I had plenty of clients. I still do today, but that's not enough because there's more to it. And this is the beauty of Alcoholics Anonymous because they talk about the service end of it. You know, the thing I love more than anything, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see that our experience can benefit Someone, I mean, what a great promise to a guy like me. <laughs> I mean, you can be worth something <laughs> and just tell somebody else that he can too. You know what I mean? It's, it's endless, the possibilities, you know what I mean? And, and so you think about the, you know, this thing and, and the, you know, what was it in me that made me think of that way about myself? Where did that come from? You know, I did five years of therapy every week between six and 11 years of sobriety where we talked about the childhood. And she helped me straighten out some things. Cause you know, things happen to little kids and little kids think weird things. Like when, the, when parents get divorced, little kids a lot of times think it's them. And no matter how much the parents tell them, it's not you, Sonny. <laughs> you know what I mean? They still end up thinking it because kids, I, you know, kids, I wasn't capable of defining what was going on in my life, but I did it. You know, at 10 years old, I decided what was good and what was bad, what was right, and what was wrong. And I was completely wrong about it. And, uh, and, and so, you, you know, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm learning all these lessons. Now, when it comes to the girls, let me tell you, I read in the fourth step in the 12 by 12, it talks about the God-given instincts, gives you examples of why we have them. You know, if man didn't house and clothe himself, he wouldn't have survived. If men and women didn't get together and have babies, mankind wouldn't have survived. And it talks about security. It says, how often do we see security defined other than money? How often do we see a weaker person depend completely on another person, therefore never learning to meet life on their own resources? And their protectors either flee or die and they're left alone one more time. And what I realized is I wasn't just screwing me. I was screwing somebody else when I was doing that. And so that set me up like in a change in sponsorship and everything, like the way I do things. I don't do anything for somebody that they should do themselves. Because the fact of the matter is, is everything I did for myself has helped to rebuild and to change and to channel who I am today. If you had done any of it for me, I wouldn't be here today. I had to do it myself. All of the, all of the self-respect that I lost drinking and using, I've regained in the struggle to stay sober, in the struggle to, to grow, to be worthwhile, to be a human being. You know what I mean? It's just it's crazy. So you go into... I mean, we go through all the steps there. I, I love the literature. I love the way they talk. But one of the things that I think is, is in the, um, in the 10th step, it says, wise men have always known no happiness can be found until a process of self-examination is established, an ability to admit and accept what is found and a patient and persistent effort to change what is wrong. Now you listen to that. When I just say that too, don't you kind of go, well, duh. You know what I mean, really? Well, yeah, right? But for some reason, as an alcoholic, it didn't work that way. You know, my hand would be on the stove and it'd be burning. And I'm thinking, 
girls are watching. Don't act like it hurts. You know I, mean? <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I have some crazy way of interpreting this information when I just need to get my fucking hand off the stove. And, and you know what? In self-care, self-love would dictate, get your hand off the stove, you idiot. You know what I mean? So, I mean, you read that and I, I just love it. And so to me, that 10th step, when they're talking about that, it's, it's a practice of all of the other steps, which is a process of taking a problem, working one, two, and three on it, bringing God into it, Fourth step, we're in the fifth, we're seeing what in my past has brought about that. Like, I could tell you straight up that all of my character defects, all of them came from me looking for an easier way than just telling you the truth or, or, or waiting in line or, or doing the work. I was always a way around the back, a way to cheat, a way to get out of it. That's what my character defects. So in changing those character defects, I had to stop that and be willing to feel the feelings, be willing to say, I'm sorry, be willing to forgive as I want to be forgiven. And all of that stuff, doing that, made me feel better inside. You know what I mean? It, it's a, the 11th step, and I love it too. There's a line, my girlfriend, there's a line that says, let me think of how it goes. When the hand of God, heavy and seemingly unjust is upon us, we find courage we did not know we have. We find strength we did not know we have. And find, in fact, we find a whole new way of living. And that is really what sobriety is really about. You know, it's about the hardship that drinking has caused in my life and your lives. It's that you're suiting up and showing up someplace to change, to try to be different, regardless of what the reason is, regardless. I mean, some of the people that I've seen that have struggled the most are the ones that have a valid reason. Oh, they were abused as kids or, you know what I mean? They were beaten or abandoned. I mean, these are real reasons that you could drink over for a lifetime. But why would you if it's your life? You know what I mean? And that's what we're talking about here. You know, the 12 step, this thing of being of service is, is the remarkable thing. That's what puts the icing on the cake. You know, that you guys would actually sit here and listen to me. I blows my fucking mind. <laughs> you know, but but that, that I even have something to say, that I have some experience that I could share with you. It may be relevant or may not. You know, it's not the greatest pitch, probably won't be the worst, but you know, it's in there someplace. But this thing of, of caring about somebody besides myself, being willing to answer the phone, being willing to take the time. I have learned more from the guys I sponsor about myself and the disease I have than any steps I ever did with my sponsor. It's been when I'm working with others that it becomes important and poignant. And if I had a nickel for every time I saw the phone number on that phone and said, ah, oh, shit, and then answered it and had a conversation where I go, God, thank you for letting me answer that. You know what I'm saying? Like, again, one more time, I don't know what's best for me. You know, I have to do what the people before me did. You know what I mean? And if I do it correctly, then I get this, this wonderful life, this wonderful, incredible life that I can share with others. You know, I have a, a relationship and she's after I love her to death. And, you know, the thing is, is she doesn't need anything from me. And, and other than friendship, I don't need anything from her either. I'm a good cook. I know how to do laundry. We don't nobody's job is nobody's job. Whatever needs to get done gets done. When I'm tired and a little bit grouchy on the way home from work, I'm asking God to remove it because I don't want to take it out on her. Now that's new behavior, but that's what love would be. You know, I don't, I tell one of the guys I sponsored, my goal, I don't ever want her to cry because of something I said to her. And if I had a nickel for every time I've made a woman cry in my life, I'd be rich. And I'm not proud of that, but that goal is because that's what love is. And it starts with self-love. You know, it starts with me loving myself so that I can love somebody else, you know, that I'm worthwhile. And then you end up with this life 
that I don't drink today because I don't fucking need to, bro. <laughs> Straight up. Man. I have a life that's worth fighting for. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like making the amends, making the changes, doing the dirty stuff, just getting it fucking done, man, because it's worth it. So am I 20 minutes almost done? Or 30? How much time? I got a couple more stories. Okay. Huh? No. no. So, yeah. The, uh, let me see here. So we talked about the money and we talked about the girls, you know. And then, so business. Okay, business is everything falls under it. Everything falls under the, the umbrella of sobriety. You know, when I remember when I was in early sobriety, I got caught padding a bill to a lawyer. <laughs> now, wait, 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 you know, he was so indignant, he fired me on the spot. But and I went to my sponsor and my sponsor, you're an idiot. Why don't you just raise your rates, which is what I did. And I've never padded a bill since then. But back to the lawyer, <laughs> he was a famous defense lawyer who'd already been caught by the IRS for taxes. And he was paying me with countersigned checks that were given to him from his safe as a way to get rid of them without having to pay tax on them. And again, not that that matters in my behavior, but I did find it a little bit ironic. But in business, <laughs> in business, Alcoholics Anonymous and sobriety has been in every aspect of it. You know, the thing of honesty, the thing of integrity, man, that has to go back to self-love too. You know, that when I tell somebody I'm going to be there at seven o'clock, if I'm going to be five minutes late, I will call them and tell them that because their time is valuable. And I do that because I want to be done that way, that my time is valuable. You know, when it comes to the jobs themselves and the things that we do, it is who I am, even though it can't be all I am. But my business, my job sites, my client relationships and the way they come out is, is a, a direct result of working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The, um, the thing of the traditions are important. You know, if you ever get a chance to read the traditions, they're incredible. And uh, one of the traditions, I remember this is a funny story. I had been giving a guy a ride, picking him up. Jane, no, it doesn't matter who. He, uh, picking him up, bringing him to meetings every morning for six months. And the toll road was going in in Laguna. And I was an hour and a half each way because of that. And this one day, it was really bad. Because somebody was out there strapping themselves to equipment. And I remember I'm driving home and God damn those people, tree huggers, they don't even have cars. You know, I'm going to go to the meeting. I'm going to share about this. And so I go to the meeting. And as soon as it's open for sharing, I shoot my hand up and James Sutterhome gets called. The guy gets called first before me. And he shares that he was out there chaining himself to the equipment. <laughs> You know, and so in that moment, in that moment, I had to decide. That's what that tradition is for. What is important? Is sobriety important? Or is me blasting him because he's a tree hugger? You know what I mean? <laughs> and so, so each one of those, I mean, in, in the, the relationship that, that in those traditions, in case you don't know, they come from the lessons of early Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that, that, you know, they won't take money, self-supporting through our own contributions. You know how important that is to each one of us individually? And as I was younger and talking, you know, I knew so many couples, people, men and girl, girls and boys, whatever, that couldn't split up because they couldn't afford it because she didn't work or he didn't work. You know, and, and the thing of not having your own source of income and feeling and you know, that you were beholding to somebody. That wouldn't feel good either. So that tradition of self-supporting through our own contributions, that's part of self-care and self-love to not have to bow down to anybody to get your dinner, you know, to have enough money or sense to cook it yourself, you know, whatever. And so all those traditions play really important. This thing of the money came in early sobriety. Those guys, when it was first getting started, got together and thought, this is great. 
Let's start a hospital. You know, we'll put AA's name on it. Well, you know, that'd be great. We'll save all sorts of people. But what happened is money got caught up in it. Well, who's paying for this? Who's paying for that? And one more time, alcoholics have learned that nothing is for free. And to keep Alcoholics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, they can't have any of those outside issues. You know, there's always a lot of conversation about the difference between the drugs and alcohol and how that should go. And I tell you what, I've known as many ex-addicts, junkies that don't want to sit in a meeting with a bunch of wine hoses. I know a bunch of alcoholics that don't want to sit in meetings with a bunch of junkies, ex-junkies. But the truth of the matter is we're all the same. And the difference between the meetings is just wherever you feel comfortable. You know what I mean? And that's the truth of the matter. So I, I think I'm running out. I'm tired. But I tell you what, I sure enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate you listening. Thank you very much.